Welcome to the Mission Driven Mom podcast. This podcast is for moms just like you who want to learn how to glorify God through finding and embracing true principles, discovering and developing your greatest gifts, and using them to serve your family and community. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Audrey Rinlisbacher, founder of the Mission Driven Mom and author of The Mission Driven Life. I'm excited you're joining me today. We get to talk about the seven laws of life mission from my book, The Mission Driven Life, and we are on law three, love truth. We're going to get into kind of what that means and why that matters so much and why people who are truly mission driven are truth seekers. I want to mention really quickly, we have sold out of day one of our event, the MVM celebration. This year, our theme is Mothers of Vision. I did a podcast recently on some principles of vision and why they matter. So you can go review that to have a better idea of what we will cover at this year's event, but it will be phenomenal. Although it's online, those who attend will not only get all the information, go through all the assignments, but they'll be mentored through it all day long in small groups online, and then have access to ask questions of me and other mentors all day and be part of the broader community. So it's going to really be a fantastic event. I'm really excited to share principles of vision that have made a big difference in my life and in the lives of so many others, you know, vision and having vision and visualizing and moving forward with that vision are principles that the very best of us live, you know. So, so important that moms do so as well. Let's talk about what it means to love truth. In order to do that, I want to talk about a man named Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He is Russian, and he was born in 1918, the year after the Russian Revolution. And he actually has a, a kind of a sad childhood. His mother was pregnant with him when his father died in a hunting accident. And so he never even met his father. He was raised by his mother with the help of some grandparents. And when he was 10 years old, he read War and Peace and was so moved by it that he began to experiment with his own writing. It just totally transformed his life to read it. Now, he was raised religious. He was raised Christian by his mother. But by the time he got to high school and it was taught the Hegelian dialectic and communism through, you know, and Marxism and Leninism, he bought in. You know, he just was taught that it was fact and, you know, it's kind of the new religion of Russia and religion is being eradicated. He said that he had some religious persecution as a young boy. He had a cross that he wore that was torn off his neck. And so... When he was in high school and was taught these things, he embraced them. He became an atheist and a communist. He joined the army when World War I broke out and the Red Army. He was in artillery training, became a commander, was decorated for bravery, and later became a captain. So he was a, an important person in World War II in Russia. But he saw what was happening. He saw what was being done. 
He saw how the soldiers were treating the common people. And over time, he started to take issue with some of the policies and procedures of the war. And so he wrote in a private letter to a friend some, some critical things about Stalin. Now, he didn't even name Stalin by name, but it was still obvious who he was talking about. And of course, there's no such thing as privacy and communism. And so his letters were seized and he was arrested he was denounced, and under Article 53 of the Penal Code, he was charged with being a counter-revolutionary, which was a punishable, <laughs> so ridiculous, it's called zero freedom of speech, is what it's called, it's called you don't have any rights. So he sentenced to eight years in the labor camps of the Gulag. And it actually got worse than that. But that was in 1945. So he is sent out there. He is a prisoner. He has to live where they tell him to live. He has to do what they tell him to do and work in these hard labor camps. From 50 to 53, he was a stonemason laying bricks. And this experience was the backdrop for his book, One Day in the Life of Ivan Desenovich, which this, along with some other writings, is what won him a Nobel Prize for literature, which he was not allowed to leave Russia and receive. So, and I'll tell you in just a minute how he managed to even get that published. So he, that was the inspiration for it, was when he lived there. So after his eight years were up, he was sent into exile for life. So he was never able to return to his home, see his family again. It's unbelievable to me. I mean, his whole life was in the hands of the communists and they could do whatever they wanted with him simply because, I mean, his only offense was writing critical things about Stalin in a personal letter. He didn't even make it public. So he teaches math and physics in a local school. He keeps writing. He's writing his first major novel, In the First Circle. He gets cancer, and the doctor tells him he has three weeks to live. And through all these experiences, his heart has been softened, and he's found God again, and he's really reconverted, and he has this miraculous cure, like he still goes through chemo for the next three years, but he doesn't die. Like his life is preserved. And he sees that as a miracle, as God's intervention in his life. And he already was a devoted writer and he already wanted to expose what was happening. But this created the fuel behind that to expose Russia to the world, to warn the rest of the world about communism, to tell the truth, to encourage other Russians to have the courage to tell the truth. And he more than once put his life on the line for what he knew was true. And he knew that the world must be warned and he risked himself in order to do that. So then Khrushchev rises to power and he denounces Stalin. And this basically opens the way. He receives his rehabilitation papers and he doesn't have to live in exile anymore, and he's able to be a school physics and astronomy teacher. And then he writes in 59, one day in the life of Ivan Desenovich. 
And it takes a year, but he's able to get the personal approval of Khrushchev to get this published in Russia. And it's this massive expose soon after it appears in translation across the Western world, and he becomes famous in the USSR and worldwide. That's in 62, and in 70, he wins uh, the Nobel Prize for this and other works that he's written. But in 64, Khrushchev is toppled, and the USSR kind of reels backward again. And so Solzhenitsyn isn't as popular and his he has to take his writing underground because so much of it is about telling the truth about what's happened in Russia and what's happening. And so a friend of his, Rostoprovich, shelters him in his home outside Moscow. They expel him from the Writers' Union. He receives the Nobel Prize. He has three sons and uh, marries the woman that he lives with for the rest of his life. And in fact, in 1971, the year after he won the Nobel Prize, the KGB tries to assassinate him using some biological agent. They think it's uh, some kind of toxin. It's not successful. And in the meantime, he is starting to write Gulag Archipelago. It's a three-volume. It's just this massive work that's a huge expose of exactly what goes on in the gulag, in the archipelago. And in 73, it's discovered and it's seized. And the really tragic part of that story is that a friend of his who was holding it for him to keep it safe, it's seized and they commit suicide. And so Solzhenitsyn, all he has at this point is the microfilm of this work. Thank goodness he had it. And he is able to smuggle it to the West, and it is printed in December of 73 in Paris. So, of course, the Russians find out about this, so a huge public campaign to discredit him begins. He's arrested, he's charged with treason, he's stripped of his citizenship. I don't know why they didn't kill him, but they didn't. They expelled him from the Soviet Union. And he was in lifetime exile from Russia. His wife, Natalia, organizes the smuggling of his archive to the West. And they head off to Switzerland. Eventually, by 76, they settle in Vermont in Cavendish. And he makes a tour of some of New England and, and sees a bit of America. And then what I'm going to talk to you more about in just a minute. In 1978, he receives an honorary degree from Harvard. And Harvard invites him to give the commencement address as part of this ceremony to award him this honorary degree. And that's a very interesting speech. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about it in just a minute. I'll finish telling you about the rest of his life. So he continues to live in America. He continues to write. He continues to be published. Things change in Russia. The wall falls in 89. And in 91, they lift the charge of treason against him. And by 94, he makes his way back to Russia. He misses his homeland. And in fact, he goes ahead of his family and he 
does a two-month train trip across Russia all the time. He holds dozens of small and large meetings, and he records what people say about Russia because he wants to get everything on record that he possibly can. In fact, he also encouraged the Russian people to write their own stories, and he was going to try to archive these and have them published. So he keeps writing short stories um, and publishing his writings. He, tr he writes up what he thinks the Russian government should do moving forward. They don't really adopt it. And does interviews. His 30-volume collected works is published near the end of his life. And he dies at 89 in Moscow of a heart attack. So this speech, this commencement speech that he gave at Harvard is called A World Split Apart. And I'm going to read you just the very beginning of it because the first point that I want to make about loving truth is that we must love truth so much that we would, like Solzhenitsyn, risk our lives to expose it, to say it, to share it, to disseminate it. And this doesn't mean that at the beginning we have that kind of courage and ability, but it means that over time, our love of truth should grow to a point where we could if we were called upon. And of course, if you've read The Mission Driven Life, that's exactly what the Ten Booms were doing. That's exactly what great men and women do. And they become great by living those foundational laws. They first love the truth and apply it in their homes. The subtitle of this law is build a principle-focused home. So I'm going to talk in just a minute about why there's a connection between truth and principles and why that connection is important. First, let me tell you about what Solzhenitsyn said because there's a component about truth that I want to make sure that we touch on here. He says he's very happy to be there. Um, congratulations to the graduates. Then he says, Harvard's motto is veritas. Now, the root word of that it, that word means truth. So their motto is truth. And it's also the root word of veracity, which means a clinging to truth at all costs. So he says, many of you have already found out and others will find out in the course of their lives that truth eludes us if we do not concentrate with total attention on its pursuit. And even while it eludes us, the illusion still lingers of knowing it and leads to many misunderstandings. And this is a key point. Also, he says, truth is seldom pleasant. It is almost invariably bitter. There is some bitterness in my speech today too, but I want to stress that it comes not from an adversary, but from a friend. Now, one of the things that he says in this speech is that he said, if I were in Russia giving a speech like this, I would tell the Russians what I think Russians need to hear, the things about Russia that are problematic that need to change. But I'm in America, and your motto is truth, so I assume you want to know the truth. And I'm here to give you a dose of the truth. And that's why he starts out by saying, this is going to be a little bitter, but I think it's necessary. So one of the things that we need to know about truth is that often truth is not necessarily what we want to hear. 
It doesn't stroke our ego. It doesn't tell us that everything's okay. It tells us often that we need to change. One of the testimonials for the MDM Academy that came out of last year's celebration event was a woman who said that, she said, when you get into the Academy, the self-honesty that's required to do the program can seem overwhelming and daunting. She said, but it's very, very liberating. The truth is almost invariably bitter. That's what Solzhenitsyn said. But Jesus also said the truth makes us free. Because it shows us the correct way. It shows us how to make a bit of a steering correction. It shows us how to be a little bit better. How to live a little more in harmony with reality, which I'll talk about in a minute. So Solzhenitsyn went on in this commencement address to tell America what was wrong with America. And what's interesting about this is that (laughs) I think, and I'm not the only one that thinks this, that Harvard, you know, admired what Solzhenitsyn had done and wanted to give them, give him this award. But they also, I think, wanted to have their egos stroked. They wanted to hear about how he had to be sent to America, the land of the free and the home of the brave, and that he loved it here and he was grateful for the sanctuary and isn't America great? And isn't it so wonderful that you don't have that nasty, awful communism? But he didn't say that. (laughs) He told America what America needed to hear. And it was bitter because it was true. And much of what he said has actually come to pass. Among other things, he said that there has been a a sharp decline in courage, especially among the leadership of Americans. And this is in 78. This is quite a while ago. (laughs) And that decline in courage has continued to, to be manifest, especially among our leadership. And he said, you know, do I need to remind you that a decline in courage is always the beginning of the end. And of course, there he's referring to the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Gibbon because, or is it Gibbons? Anyway, that's in the great book set because that was what he analyzed, that great civilizations become great through moral courage through standing up for moral values that they, that they give their lives to defend. And eventually, when they become comfortable and apathetic, they lose their courage and they, it gives way to bondage again. And so he was trying to show us it's the beginning of the end for you if you're losing your courage because if you don't really have much to live for besides material possessions, then you won't have much to die for. He says that he said that America is worldly and prideful. We think our way is superior in all respects, basically. That we focus on the letter of the law, regardless of underlying ethics and morality, to the detriment of our spiritual life. Here he says, It is time in the West to defend not so much human rights as human obligations. He said, in our clamoring for rights and the letter of the law, we have forgotten that the other side of the coin is human duty and that we must fulfill our responsibilities and hold true to the values and morals that we're founded on. He goes on to say, 
Destructive and irresponsible freedom has been granted boundless space. Society appears to have little defense against the abyss of human decadence, such as, for example, misuse of liberty for moral violence against young people, motion pictures full of pornography, crime, and horror. It is considered to be part of freedom and theoretically counterbalanced by the young people's right not to look or not to accept. Life organized legalistically has thus shown its inability to defend itself against the corrosion of evil. He goes on to say that a tilt, we have a tilt of freedom in the direction of evil. He says that we have more than we need, but our competitive desire for more makes us depressed and unfulfilled. He said we, we can never even use the many possessions that we have, and of course it's just become more and more the case as we've become more and more materialistic as a civilization. And we don't have an appropriate frame of reference for when it's enough. We don't live according to when it's enough. And so we're just depressed and unfulfilled even though we have everything. We are tilting in the direction of evil because of our embracing of humanistic principles that, have that, that are divorced of God. We have the right not to know as well as the right to know and he said actually if you asked me if i would use america as a model for my country the answer would be no i could not recommend your society in its present state as an ideal for the transformation of ours through intense suffering our country has now achieved a spiritual development of such intensity that the Western system in its present state of spiritual exhaustion does not look attractive. Even those characteristics of your life, which I have just mentioned, are extremely saddening. A fact which cannot be disputed is the weakening of human beings in the West, while in the East they are becoming firmer and stronger. And he says this is happening specifically because of what he went through in the gulags, what the Russians went through with communism, that they've had to rediscover their faith, that they've had to cling to moral truths, that they've had to rely on God. And this has created great spiritual strength, which the West is lacking. Now, his willingness to really sacrifice himself and give his life in many literal ways to gathering up truth, to teaching truth, to disseminating truth is really absolutely amazing. And so the question then is, why must you love truth in order to engage in mission work? Well, truth, the definition of truth is conformity to three things. This is really fascinating to me. Conformity to fact or reality, conformity of words to thoughts, and conformity to rules. When truth is putting what we say and do in line with what we think, who we are, and what is the ultimate reality. What 
what we say and do and who we are must conform to what is real. That is what truth is. And so that leads us to how truth and principles are connected. They are connected because the principles are the ultimate reality. God's natural laws and principles are the ultimate reality. They are the way in which we align ourselves with how we've been created. They are the reality that brings the ultimate results, which is why when you see people losing weight, people fixing their finances, people developing stronger relationships, people fixing um, their businesses or even their governmental forms, you find this consistency, this under, these underlying principles that they're all living in harmony with. It's like when de Tocqueville said at the beginning of Democracy in America, let's adopt the principles rather than the, what's the word he used? He didn't use the word application. He used something like, applica like application uh, in America. Let's live the principles the Americans are living, but let's do it in a French way. Because the definition of principle is the cause, source, or origin of anything. The operative cause, the ground, the foundation that supports an assertion, an action, or a series of actions or reasoning. So the principles and the natural laws are the foundation. They're, the one, they're, they're what underlies the truth. And when anything we do, say, think, or act upon is in harmony with that underlying principle, then it's true. It's the truth. It's in line with reality. It's the conformity to the ultimate truth. It's the rule. It serves as a rule of action, the basis of a system. And it goes on to talk about the principles of human nature. What Solzhenitsyn was trying to do was tell the truth. Part of that truth was the facts about what actually happened. But the bigger truth was how Russia was out of line with principles of human nature, with natural laws, and with natural rights and duties. And he wanted the world, he knew that the world needed to know the truth about communism, that whatever it says is out of line with principles. It doesn't work. It's not in line with reality. It doesn't nurture human nature. It doesn't uphold human rights. It's not in line with natural laws. And so it cannot work as, a, as an ideology, as a religion, as a tool for action for human beings. It just can't work, which is why everywhere that it has been implemented, it has opened the door to tyranny and dictatorship, and it has cost the lives of millions and millions of people. One of the things that I think is fascinating is that people who speak against religion will often say, oh, just, you know, think of, think of all the people that were killed because of their religious beliefs. Well, that's true, but only to a point, because mostly, in human history, the killing has been done by governments. Even if you look back at 
you know, the Crusades. Those were governments. Those, you know, kind of the religion working in, in company with the government. Or if you look at England, you know, killing or persecuting people who didn't belong to the state religion. It came from the top. It came from dictators and tyrants who wanted to persecute people that didn't agree with them. And most of the killing on a massive scale in the history of the world has been done by governments. Governments fighting each other or governments persecuting their own people. Most of that killing has not been done by average, decent people trying to follow God who just wanted to just go out and kill somebody. Some of that still takes place. There are terrorists who do things, quote, in the name of religion or because they say they believe in God. Of course, we can see that that's a distortion of truth. But the reason I bring that up is because we are in a situation in America where it is vital that we know the truth about government and economics too. And it's vital that we teach those true principles to our children so that we can perpetuate liberty. Liberty has its own foundation. And the truth sets us free when we live in harmony with it. And so in level three, we dig real deep into that. In level two, we focus on this particular law. Laws one and two are in level one. Law three is in level two. We're building principle-focused homes. We're coming to understand what true principles are, what they look like, smell like, taste like, act like. And then we're digging in, striving to find principles, whether it be health, education, marriage, mothering, and put our own homes in line with these true principles. And then in level three, we learn more about you know, other principles, worldviews, world religions, that kind of thing. But in the past, in this series of the seven laws, I have gone through each of the principles that were underneath that law. But this month, I'm not going to do that. These three principles in loving truth and building a principle-focused home are to understand, to live, regardless of circumstances, true principles. And there are so many podcasts at the Mission Driven Mom that give you far more detail than I could do in this short podcast. So there's, for example, our two-part series on the 12 characteristics of true principles, which have also made their way into the new copy of the book. There are several podcasts that start the principles of addiction recovery, principles of forgiveness, those are worth listening to. There's a podcast called Principles Stink where I go into more detail about this concept. I think I might even quote Solzhenitsyn in that podcast about how the truth is often bitter because it asks us to change. And it's the thing that we're not doing because we're not getting the results that we want. And so we have to align ourselves with that principle. I'll, you know, just a very brief example would be telling yourself the truth. That principle is absolutely critical and it has saved me in so many situations where I was full of fear or I was full of doubt and 
things that I couldn't control were encroaching on my personal happiness. And I leaned so heavily on that principle and I was not living it and I was not in line with it. I was not telling myself the truth. And I had to work and work and work to live that principle. And it was bitter to discover it and bitter to know how critical it was. But I have so much more freedom. I'm more able to enjoy each day. I'm able, better able to let other people live their own lives, to not feel like I have to be so judgmental, to not get into their business, to not feel like I have to control them. I can just live my life and control what I can control. And I have greater influence anyway. There are so many principles like that. We've had to align ourselves with health principles, with principles of addiction recovery. I spent years learning the principles of forgiveness and had to live those rather than carrying resentments, which were making me unhappy. So we just want to build principle-centered homes. We want to love the truth. You know, it requires humility and that can be hard. Women tend to be more, they tend to be humble But sometimes that humility is in an unhealthy form. Sometimes they think, sometimes we women think we're humble, but we're actually just in self-pity. We think we're less than, less than the laws, less than the principles. They can't work for us. We're not good enough. That's just lying to ourselves. That's not being humble. True humility says, God loves me and I have worth, but I do need to change and I need to be teachable. So we want to be truly humble. We want to see, want to, be on an active search for true principles. We want to do our very best to apply those the best way we know how and align ourselves with truth that will make us free. The last, of course, podcast series I would encourage you to go listen to if you have not was released early on in the podcast series. It's probably almost a couple years old now. It's the Intro to Principles three-part series. I spend one podcast on natural law, one on first principles, and one on principles, and that will give you some great insights. But again, and I've mentioned this in the past, people sometimes reach out to me like, I've listened to the podcasts, and I'm trying to implement principles. If you're still struggling, you're going to have to get into the academy. I just don't have any other help to give you besides teaching it to you the best I can, and then just go to the academy and get mentored through it so that you really can master these skills. It's so critical. It's so critical to your personal happiness, but more than that, to your peace of mind. Feeling like you are really grounded, like you know where you're headed, like you know what what you're doing, where you're going. Principles of vision are so critical to that. Having a vision for the future knowing why you're doing what you're doing and being able to communicate that clearly. That's what we're doing at the event. So we have some tools for you that we hope will help you, but ultimately be a truth seeker, love truth. Don't let its initial bitterness turn you off because that bitterness is followed by the sweetness of a lifetime of overcoming trials and struggles that may have plagued you for as long as you can remember. And we have experienced that firsthand in our personal lives. And I can promise you, principles work. The truth will make you free. Thanks so much for joining me. If you don't have your audio copy of The Mission Driven Life, it's still available on our website until the new website is launched in a few weeks. So go grab that 
And if you have not joined our Facebook group, the Mission Driven Mom Mastermind Facebook group, we'd love to see you there and get to know you. We do have some discussions there around this podcast and all the things that we discuss at the Mission Driven Mom. So join us in that Facebook group and I will see you next time.